You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. On Monday, Florida Governor Rick Scott issued a challenge to the state's 28 state and community colleges to provide a four-year degree for $10,000 or less. Now a leader of the Florida education community are challenging the governor to provide more details for what he is seeking. In a letter written to the governor, Vice President of the Florida Board of Education, Roberto Martinez, says the governor isn't clear about how colleges are supposed to cut the cost of tuition. I think that the announcement by the um, governor was uh, uh, short totally on details. The goal of an affordable education, that's everybody's goal, and that's been the goal since in the case of the colleges, since they were founded in 1933. So nobody disagrees with the goal. Uh, the problem is in the details, and um, I didn't see any details that uh, went along with it. Along with the report's lack of details, Martinez is concerned about where funding will come from to cover the tuition cuts. The average cost of a four-year degree at a state college now is around $13,000. With state funding cuts to colleges every year since 2008, he fears other school programs will be cut or reduced to save money. Uh, For us, for the colleges to cut their costs even further, and by the way, a lot of the costs for these students who get the four-year degrees uh, are paid for by grants or scholarships. So as it pertains to the four-year degree recipients at the colleges, uh, the amount of debt that uh, they carry to get a four-year degree is relatively minor. Uh, to lower the cost even further without providing any state funding, the question necessarily is, well, where is that money going to come from? And the concern that I have is that other programs being offered by the colleges, they will be cannibalized in order to provide a college degree for $10,000, as the governor has, has, uh, has challenged. Martinez says the cost of education at a state university is already low and that lowering the cost of a four-year degree will cause the quality of education to suffer. We have uh, some of the lowest uh, tuition costs for higher education found anywhere in the country. I believe we may be the... Uh, the least expensive state or one of the top three least expensive states in the nation in the cost of higher education. So I think the colleges are already doing their part and doing it significantly and doing it in a way that delivers a quality product. Why do we want to cheapen the quality of the education these uh, students are getting? I don't. Martinez had hoped Governor Scott would reconsider his plan and provide more specifics, but he hasn't received any new information. And I was hoping that the governor would, uh, you know, would reconsider uh, the way in which he was uh, asking uh, that this uh, degree be uh, awarded. I was hoping that he would provide some more details. I was hoping that he would say that he was going to be asking the legislature to appropriate more funding to the colleges. Um, and I didn't see any of that. I just saw a, uh, what was it, essentially a soundbite. Martinez adds that if the quality of education is reduced to cover the tuition cuts, students receiving these degrees will not be as competitive in the workforce. But he hopes the government will eventually increase funding to the colleges. Citrus County is missing millions of dollars in revenue after Progress Energy Florida refused to pay the full amount of its property tax. This has left the county's public services in a bind. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Denise Toledo reports on how this budget crisis will affect Citrus County residents and what can be expected in the near future.
Citrus County Sheriff's Office called an emergency meeting yesterday to address the issue of Progress Energy's failure to pay the entirety of their property tax bill. Progress Energy Florida, which recently became a subsidiary of Duke Energy, which is based in North Carolina, claims the Citrus County property appraiser has overvalued their Crystal River plant. The property tax bill totals $35 million, but as of Wednesday, Progress Energy had submitted only $19 million. Chairman for the Board of County Commission for Citrus County, Joe Meek, says Progress Energy Florida accounts for a large portion of the county's tax revenue, making this a major issue. We're a small county of 142,000 people. Uh, the dollar amounts that we're talking about are significant by themselves, but in relation to the size of our budget, they're very large. Uh, this is a very unique situation where we have a single taxpayer that controls 26% of our tax base. So uh, this is a unique situation uh, that uh, will have very large implications to our county, and Duke needs to understand that. Meek explained that since Duke Energy and Progress Energy have merged, negotiations have not been nearly as successful. Every year for 14 years, the county, through the property appraiser, has been able to come to a resolution and to a tax agreement as to what they what they owe. And so every year uh, they negotiate. Um, unfortunately, this year uh, is different. This year is different because Duke Energy is involved in the picture. Uh, we've been dealing with Florida Power and then Progress Energy. Uh, this year Duke is here and they've taken a different stance. And so while every year uh, there is a negotiation and some level of uncertainty, it's not nearly to the extent of what it, we're being seen uh, in front of us today. Should Progress Energy continue to refuse to pay the bill, Meek says county services budgeted for will be directly affected. The issue that we face is we're almost three months into our fiscal budget year uh, and so it's not as if we're talking about planning for the future and being able to build our budget around that. It directly affects our ability to be able to fund the services uh, that we have budgeted for, that we've set our millage rates on. Uh, and those things are police, fire, EMS, parks, libraries, and our county functions as a whole. It affects us over $7 million. It affects the school board close to $8 million, or over $8 million. And so it's going to have a drastic effect on their budget as well. Citrus County Sheriff Jeff Dawsey has already had to take action because of the lack of revenue. As a two-prong approach, one is that I have stopped all purchasing uh, and new hires. That's done deal. It went into play about 36 hours ago. Okay. From there, a lot has to depend on the negotiations between our county uh, and Duke. Those are the two players right now. Spokesperson for Progress Energy Florida, Suzanne Grant, says Progress Energy feels they have the right to dispute the value that has been assessed by the property appraiser. Grant says Progress Energy feels their Crystal River plant has been overvalued and therefore will take action against paying more than what she says is their fair share. We are paying like any, any other taxpayer and we have an option, um, as every other taxpayer does, if we feel that our tax uh, assessment is overstated, as we do in this case, we have an option to look into that and ensure that we are not paying more than our fair share. We intend to pay our fair share. We believe we are paying our fair share, and that's why we're looking at this matter in the way that we are. Sheriff Dawsey says by not paying the full $35 million, Progress Energy is failing to live up to their financial responsibilities. 
However, Grant says Progress Energy is fulfilling its obligations to its customers. You know, we care very deeply about Citrus County and all the communities that we serve. You know, our employees live and work in these communities, too. We have a long legacy of supporting the counties in which we uh, live and work and serve, and we'll continue to do that. But we really feel it's our obligation to ensure for all of our customers that our tax values are appropriate and to take the appropriate measures, and that's what we're looking into doing. Grant says Progress Energy Florida plans to file a complaint in circuit court today regarding the property tax. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Denise Toledo. Holiday shoppers are busy checking their list twice, and many are now opting for online shopping over traditional stores, preferring a few clicks of the mouse to finish off their gift lists. But if consumers aren't careful, those gifts that were supposed to be conveniently dropped off at their stoop may never arrive. Alachua County Sheriff's Office has been investigating a string of missing packages in the area, with more than 10 packages being reported stolen in the past month. ASO spokesman Art Forgy says while it's normal to see this crime pick up with increased holiday shopping, this is unusual. We haven't seen this much before. It has been, it has happened before, and, uh, uh, you know, it's probably going to continue to happen, but we haven't really seen it at the levels that we're seeing it at currently. Last night, ASO made two arrests in connection with several packages reported missing during the past week. 23-year-old 23, 23 Lakeisha Chantel Ralston and 23-year-old Nicole Holker were arrested and charged with burglary, grand theft, and petty theft after descriptions of their car turned investigators onto their trail. However, in the majority of cases like these, finding a suspect is difficult. There are very little leads, and this is a crime that happens so quickly. Uh, you drive by a house, you see the package there, maybe go down the block, turn around, pull up, stop, act like you're going to knock on the door, pick the package up, and you're gone. For Gainesville resident Benjamin Hype, it's a frustrating situation he says he'll just have to live with. Hype says he never expected his purchases to go missing. You know, I order online all the time, it's not an issue, and packages get delivered without any issues prior to this. But for the past two weeks, he's been working with the Alachua County Sheriff's Office to investigate the 40-pound box that disappeared from his doorstep. Art Forge says it's important to try and avoid these situations in the first place. Yeah, a trusted neighbor, uh, have it delivered to their address, a family friend, have it delivered to your workplace. If all else fails, a lot of the package delivery places, uh, UPS for example, will deliver it to one of their UPS stores and you can go by there and pick it up. Uh, you know, nothing is fail-safe, but you want to limit your uh, opportunities of being targeted as a victim. And if you do happen to see one of these crimes in action, report it immediately. The best way to report it is to call 911 immediately. Try to get a description of the person, uh, the vehicle that they got out of, and call law enforcement. Uh, you know, obviously this time of the year we have recognized that there's a problem and this is a growing trend and so uh, our deputies are going to be in neighborhoods. We'll have uh, a few extra personnel that we can deploy this time of the year. Forgy says with community support and some cautious action from consumers, everyone will be able to have a safe and happy holiday season. The Public Safety Committee of the City of Gainesville held a meeting yesterday discussing the issue of Rome towing. During the meeting, they discussed many issues including the possible increase in towing fees and tow truck drivers with DUIs. Owners of Superior Towing Company Mike Weber says the cost of towing expenses has rapidly increased 
due to gas prices and in turn cost the towing company more just to stay in business. We're asking for a rate increase because it's costing us about 25% more just to stay in business uh, because the, the price of fuel has gone up almost 100% in five years. Um, so just that factor alone, and we're a fuel-based industry. City Commissioner Lauren Poe says most of the commission realizes operation costs are increasing. I think that there was um, acknowledgement um, by the, most of the commission that um, you know, costs of doing business have gone up, you know, whether it's fuel costs or, or labor costs. Since the minimum wage has increased by about 25 percent over the years, Weber says towing rates should increase as well. Basically, the minimum wage has gone up 25 percent, which, you know, the government says that it, the cost of living, it costs more uh, to live. So we're just going off of that uh, because, like I said, the towing companies haven't received a rate increase, and we're pretty much the only ones that are regulated by the city. Poe says the commission needs to find a fair rate and then have a periodic increase every few years. The city commission is just going to have to decide on what we believe subjectively is a fair rate today. Uh, and then I think there was some willingness to build in a periodic escalator so we don't have to have this huge debate. But every you know, three to five years, we, we go ahead and raise the fee a, a fair amount. Poe says a meeting will be held later in December to discuss all of the new changes and recommendations. The bulk of the recommendations uh, from the committee are um, being forwarded to the full commission. So um, at an uh, upcoming meeting, uh, probably December 20th, um, the full commission will, will hear these uh, issues. Uh, we'll discuss it as a commission, and then um, hopefully we'll, we'll take a vote and approve um, most, if not all, of the recommended changes. As far as the other issues presented at the meeting, they either reached no consensus or no specific consensus. Therefore, those issues will also be discussed and voted on as a full commission at a later meeting. A new report released by the, the Leroy Collins Institute and Government Watchdog Group Integrity Florida shows several counties have adopted ethics policies that are stricter than required by state law. As Florida Public Radio's Jessica Palombo reports, researchers hope that report will help local and state governments come up with more uniform ethics guidelines. Florida has long been ethically challenged, according to researchers who announced their findings on Thursday. Dan Krasner, executive director of Integrity Florida, says the state is lagging behind many other states in the level of accountability it demands from elected officials. Thirty other states have a state ethics commission with the authority to initiate investigations. Florida does not. Twenty-seven other states post financial disclosure statements online for the public to see. Florida does not. But online financial disclosure is among the ideas put forth by the new Florida Senate president, Don Gates. He's creating an ethics and elections reform committee to make recommendations about government transparency. Krasner says a similar drive for reform is being spearheaded by Florida Commission on Ethics Chairman Matt Carlucci. Uh, we have a commitment from our top state leaders for ethics reform that Florida hasn't seen in more than 36 years. So this is an exciting time. Krasner says he hopes the state can take some cues from county ethics reforms in areas like financial disclosure, lobbying, and campaign finance, which are all outlined in the report. We encourage the county officials and the ethics reformers from around Florida who were involved in the efforts to pass these policies to come to Tallahassee and, and share experiences, good and bad. The report shows several counties have policies that go beyond the minimums required by state law. 
The researchers sent county governments a questionnaire asking things like, do you have a law that prevents officials from voting on matters that might be a conflict of interest? Five counties did, including Miami-Dade, Hillsborough, and Orange. In some areas, though, the counties are lagging behind what's required in Tallahassee. Only 10 counties responded in the affirmative that they require lobbyist registration. Of those 10, Leon was the only county to also require lobbyists to disclose their compensation. Florida State University's Leroy Collins Institute co-authored the study. Director Carol Weissert says many of the reforms that counties have enacted were the result of corruption and citizen outcries. There's a lot of skepticism about government today. So if the local governments and the state governments put in place strong ethics policies, that is a sign that we care about this issue. And Krasner says the ultimate goal of the report is to help everyone find the best ethics policies that can be applied to all levels of government. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Jessica Palumbo. Weeks after the presidential election, Mitt Romney is apparently pointing a blaming finger at the presidential debate moderators, according to NY Magazine. Several conservatives criticized the fairness of the moderators, presidential debate moderator Candy Crowley among them. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Belinda Post looks at the ethics behind moderators correcting candidates during political debates. Tuesday, October 16th, Governor Mitt Romney and President Barack Obama met for the second presidential debate. CNN's Candy Crowley moderated the town hall-style debate, which aired live on many of the major networks. Before the debate, both the Obama and Romney campaigns had complained to the Commission on Presidential Debates because Crowley told CNN, Huffington Post, and other news organizations she planned to be a more active moderator. From the debate. The day after the attack, Governor, I stood in the Rose Garden and I told the American people and the world that we were going to find out exactly what happened, that this was an act of terror, and I also said that we're going to hunt down those who committed this crime. I think it's interesting the president just said something which which is that on the day after the attack he went to the Rose Garden and said that this was an act of terror. You said in the Rose Garden the day after the attack it was an act of terror. It was not a spontaneous demonstration. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. I, I, I want to make sure we get that for the record because it took the president 14 days before he called the attack in Benghazi an act of terror. Get the transcript. It, 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 he did, in, in fact, sir. So let me let me call it an act of Can terror. Can you say that a little louder, Candy? He, he did call it an act of terror. It did as well take... It did as well uh, take uh, two weeks or so uh, for the whole idea of there being a riot out there about this tape uh, to come out. You're correct Uh, about that. That exchange was heavily discussed on many network news programs. Programs like NPR's The Diane Rehm Show. The morning after the debate, Rehm aired President Obama's speech in the Rose Garden the day after the attack in Libya. No acts of terror will ever shake the resolve of this great nation, alter that character or eclipse the light of the values that we stand for. Crowley's live fact check was accurate. And on Ream's show, Washington Post political blogger Chris Saliza supported Crowley. I thought Candy in the moment did exactly what she should do. But some hosts like Rush Limbaugh questioned Crowley's fairness as a debate moderator. To hell with that. It was just, it's Candy Crowley walking. You know, you acted like a replacement ref in the interview. When you tried to help Obama. Obama asked you to read the transcript, and you have the transcript. Isn't that amazing? Obama says, check the transcript, and Candy Crowley had it. Did you notice that? And on Fox News, 
Charles Krauthammer said Crowley tainted the debate. We got Candy Crowley's intervention, which was essentially incorrect. I think it was contaminated by the actions of the moderator. Conflicting reactions to Crowley's fact check started a discussion in the journalism community on whether it's ethical for moderators to correct debaters. After 25 years in journalism, Dr. Norm Lewis of the University of Florida says it is ethical. Before Lewis started teaching at UF, he worked at the Washington Post, served as editor-in-chief at Daily Papers for 15 years, and even moderated political debates. Lewis said fact-checking holds candidates accountable, and a moderator's goal is to serve the public. I think what the moderator did was terrific, because her role should be to be more than just a timekeeper. What we're looking for is something that helps the voter make sense of candidates, then freeing the moderator to um, not just stick to the script, but to respond to statements, challenge statements, ask for more clarity, ask for more definition, all that is useful for the undecided voter. Kansas Democratic Party chair and former state legislator Joan Wagnon has debated in more than 20 political debates. Now she helps arrange and set rules for state legislature and gubernatorial debates. Wagnon says it's a moderator's ethical responsibility to keep candidates honest. But a live fact check like Crowley's might not be the right choice for less informed moderators. It's not appropriate for everybody, but in this instance, she was one of the journalists that was covering the president when he was talking about the Libyan situation in the Rose Garden. And she had firsthand knowledge of what he said. When Mitt Romney tried to distort his remarks, she said, that's not true, that is what he said. So in the interest of fairness, she did not allow one side to gain an advantage by asserting something that wasn't true. Jason Grill of J. Grill Media looks at moderator fact checks more conservatively. Grill contributes to Huffington Post and Politico and was in political debates during his time in the Missouri State Legislature. Grill's a political analyst for the Fox TV station in Kansas City and prefers less moderator fact checks during a debate. I think that the moderator should try to stay out as much as possible. You know, it's a tough deal. And so she, she stepped in and she said something about a quote and the quote. You can interpret it either way, I think. And those fact-check things, let's be honest here. I mean, some of the candidates say things that aren't true in those debates. And all the people afterwards fact-check it from your factcheck.org. The Society of Professional Journalists Ethics Committee Vice Chair Fred Brown says SPJ doesn't have specific rules for moderators, but they should be fair and accurate. To best serve the public, the moderator should point out lies or misrepresentations in the debate, but they must choose their words carefully. You don't want to put yourself in a position saying, well, I disagree with you because I know what's right. And if there is some question about whether it's accurate or not, let the candidate who's made the point in contradiction to that alleged fact explain why it's wrong and why he is right. Don't draw the conclusion yourself. Always leave it to the people who are debating to make the closing argument. As these experts show, journalists have different opinions on how much leeway a moderator has to fact-check debaters. Lewis asked journalists to remember the point of a debate is to show differences between candidates, and sometimes a moderator may be needed to do so. The purpose of the debate is so critical here. It should be 
to enable voters to make up their mind about which candidate better suits his or her needs. And to do that, we need a moderator that has the freedom and the courage to call out candidates as she did when they air. Crowley said on CNN she does not backtrack the statement, the statement that earned her applause during debate, too, an applause that may mean Americans want the moderator to hold candidates accountable by fact-checking. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Belinda Post. Governor Rick Scott will be leaving for Columbia on Sunday with 190 participants from Florida. Columbia is Florida's second-largest trading partner, and Terry McCoy, expert of Latina American Studies, believes that this is a good opportunity for business growth in the state. Aside from, uh, you know, uh, strengthening these ties, um, it comes on the uh, heels of implementation of a free trade agreement between uh, the United States and Colombia. It's now in operation, and this will even open up greater trade opportunities uh, for Florida, trade and investment opportunities. Enterprise Florida organized this trade mission along with six other past missions. According to McCoy, the goals of the trip are to introduce Florida's businesses, elected officials, and community leaders firsthand to global business opportunities and to attract job-creating foreign direct investment into the state. All these companies sign on to these trade missions, which are actually quite common for states to take, um, uh, because they want to build more business with the in the country they're visiting. This might be in the form of uh, um, more imports from that country to the United States or more exports from Florida uh, to Colombia. It also involves the possibility of investment uh, flows from Florida to Colombia or Colombia to Florida. So they all come away hoping to sign contracts uh, for increased business. McCoy says this trip is also beneficial to Colombia. Florida will provide Colombia with certain items they don't already produce. In addition to that, Florida sends to Colombia agricultural equipment, other kinds of equipment, uh, fertilizers, and uh, services. Trips in the past have proven successful, and Governor Scott is hoping for similar results this time around. Records were broken, lives were changed, and some coastlines will never be the same. Ready or not, the 2012 hurricane season started early, at times was very active, and was capped off by an unprecedented finish. We're now joined by UF forecaster Dan Henry. So Dan, you and our meteorologist Jeff Huffman have been working on a special piece that highlights this year's hurricane season. What exactly is the project? Well, um, we wanted to follow up with what we did earlier in the year with our State of the Season uh, recap on WRUF. And basically it was a recap of the season and try to figure out what conclusions we could draw from it and, you know, ask, was there a story? Was there a dominant theme to this year's hurricane season? Now, what was the focus of this piece? Was there any particular storm that this is really focusing on? Or can you kind of describe that? Well, that's the amazing part about this year's hurricane season. There were so many storms to focus on. We tried to look for records, the big storms. You know, obviously the big headline storms were Hurricane Sandy, of course, and Hurricane Isaac earlier in the year. And we wanted to see how those storms and also the lesser nationally renowned ones, such as Beryl and Debbie, both of those tropical storms, how they impacted north central Florida and try to, you know, summarize it and bring a story to all of that. Now, why was this season so memorable? 
Well, there's a lot of reasons. I'll start off with the early part of the season where we had the most activity before the season began in, you know, Atlantic history. Then we had both Beryl and Debbie, those tropical storms, one hitting the nature coast and the other hitting the Atlantic coast. Both of those brought some record rains to north central Florida. Debbie uh, actually had the second highest rainfall total in the entirety of Gainesville's history for a one-day system. That was about seven inches of rain in a 24-hour period. So pretty remarkable there. And, uh, of course, Superstorm Sandy, we, you know, I don't even need to talk about that. Everyone knows the wind field stretching from Bermuda to North Carolina was absolutely unprecedented in the Atlantic, a thousand mile wide, you know, path of destruction, $70 billion in damage. That's, you know, the second largest total in um, Atlantic history, only behind Katrina. And of course, Hurricane Isaac moving right where Katrina moved seven years ago, testing those levees that were just built by the Army Corps of Engineers. And fortunately, those mostly held, although the storm still managed to produce about $2 billion in damage. So we looked at all those and, you know, we basically tried to follow up with our state of the season report where we had talked about the El Nino current. Now, with the El Nino current, you're talking about possible effects. Whatever happened with this current? Well, it's a bit of an interesting story, actually. We (laughs) were expecting a bit of a development of the El Nino current. Most models were predicting it, and it just kind of fizzled out. The El Nino current, of course, is the current off of South America. If it's a warmer current, then we call it an El Nino. If it's cooler than average, we call it La Nina. And it stayed in what we call an ENSO-neutral position, which is between uh, negative 0.5 and positive 0.5 degrees Celsius. So these neutral conditions had a marginal um, instead of a large impact on the hurricane season. You know, if we had expected that El Nino to form further, it would have diminished the activity. It didn't form further, and as a result, we had above-average activity thanks to some high sea surface temperatures, low wind shear, and just generally favorable conditions in the open Atlantic. Now, with your finished piece, where can we watch it? Where can people find it? Well, um, we're still working on editing the video part of it, but um, the actual, I have an article that's written a bit more like a research paper, so if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of some of the facts and figures, go online to GatorWeather.com on our blog. Uh, We've posted the piece. It's about a 1,000 words long, so it's a nice little five-minute read uh, recapping the entire season. And then we're also doing the video as well. We're going to have that on WUFT News tonight, and then we're also going to put a different version of that on WRUF Channel 6, Digital 10. And that'll be airing later on this weekend. All right. Thanks, Dan. Welcome back. Are you and your family looking for something to do this weekend? The holiday season is right around the corner, and there are many local winter-themed events. Florida's 89.1 Sarah Samuels reports there are two main events in Gainesville that families can enjoy. Sleigh bells ring. Tomorrow is the 1st of December, and it is also the kickoff of many family-oriented holiday events happening around town. A children's holiday at Santa Fe begins at 2 p.m. in the Santa Fe Fine Arts Hall on the Northwest Campus. Santa Fe Director of Communications David Halder says the event will showcase the talented performers who attend Santa Fe College. It's a real cross-section of all of our um... Uh, people in our fine arts, so you know we've got our our uh, musicians, uh, our singers, our dancers who will be doing you know um, again some hip hop stuff, some some classical stuff, some jazz stuff, uh, you know all, all sorts of stuff like that. And again, they're all they're all students from Santa Fe's program. Howder says the idea for a children's holiday event became a reality last year with the addition of the new fine arts building on the Santa Fe campus. Howder also says this year's performance will have a few more additions from last year, including a fun surprise for the audience. 
we have a few additions. We have a, um, a special surprise during the show, which we're um, not going to reveal. You'll have to find out uh, <laughs> when that actually happens. But it's something that doesn't happen in Florida very often. I'll, I'll give you that hint. Um, but uh, we're kind of building on it year to year. We're, we're you know, always reacting to what we find out people like and, you know, giving a little more of that. The children's holiday is $10 for adults and free for children 12 and under. Later on that evening, the annual holiday tree lighting celebration will take place at the Thomas Center in downtown Gainesville from 6 to 8 p.m. City of Gainesville event coordinator David Ballard says there will be lots of great entertainment for the crowd to enjoy. We have uh, caroling by the Singers of the Reformation and the Gainesville Harmony Show Chorus. We have holiday music on Hammer Dulcimer and Auto Harp by Jim and Joyce Lilquist of the Gypsy Gria Band. Santa will will be uh, there and uh, uh, visiting with all the young at heart. And uh, we'll also have Mayor Craig Lowe will um, actually uh, head up the celebration, and he'll call for the lighting of the tree. And uh, we have a giant uh, tree that is uh, decorated by the Thomas Center Associates, uh, as well as the other decorations around the uh, uh, Thomas Center for the holiday. And uh, in outside, the uh, Duck Pond Neighborhood Association will um, have carriage rides available uh, for their annual luminaries. Recently, there has been some discussion in the community over calling the tree a holiday tree as opposed to calling it a Christmas tree. Ballard says the city has always called the tree a holiday tree. That's been something that's been traditional since well before I worked for the city, but I, I, I believe that, uh, you know, it's just out of uh, respect to people of all religions uh, to, you know, have a celebration that uh, is encompassing rather than, than limiting to one. Ballard says people of all religions are welcome to come to the event and mingle with their neighbors. Once again, the children's holiday at Santa Fe and the holiday tree lighting celebration will be tomorrow, Saturday, December 1st. The children's holiday will begin at 2 p.m. and the tree lighting celebration will begin at 6 p.m. For Florida's 89.1 WFTFM, I'm Sarah Samuels. This time of year, many birds from the north began migrating south for the winter. Some will stay here in South Florida, while others will pass through the region on their way to the Caribbean. Increasingly, these birds are running into man-made obstacles that leave them with injured eyes, wings, and beaks. As Marva Hinton from member station WLRN reports, when this happens, the South Florida Wildlife Center often comes to their rescue. The South Florida Wildlife Center in Fort Lauderdale treats more than 3,000 migratory birds each year. As they fly through South Florida, they have to navigate a changing landscape. If new buildings come up or forests are, are taken down or a dam is put up and waterways change, that can confuse the birds, which causes them sometimes to have to um, deviate from their normal route, taking them over long stretches of water where they cannot land and feed. In addition to new high-rises and recently cleared land, the center's executive director, Sherry Schluter, says these birds are also running into people who would do them harm. We have seen an increase in injuries, trauma-related injuries, poisonings, uh, lead shot, uh, birds, uh, crashes into glass windows. So it's amazing to me that as many of them make it to the destination are able to have their young regain their strength and fly back home 
to the north in the spring. When the birds arrive at the center, they're cared for by three licensed vets and three licensed wildlife rehabilitators. The facility does all of this without receiving any government assistance. I'm Marva Hinton in Miami. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Stephanie DiNardo. And I'm Ashley Goodis. Stay tuned for a news update from NPR and the WUFTFM news team.